It's the end of the teen years of this century, which we think is an ideal time to take stock of and gather meaning from what's been going on in greater Cleveland since the 2010s began. Welcome to a special episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the news by the reporters and editors of Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of Cleveland.com, and I'm with podcast co-host Laura Johnston and two veteran reporters who have covered many of the topics we'll be discussing today, columnist Layla Atassi and impact reporter Pete Kraus. Their mission for this episode is to provide perspective on 10 stories that we think are the biggest from January 2010 to the present. Welcome, Layla and Pete. Thanks for having us. Can't believe the decades in the record books. I feel a little older. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) Right. Laura, you wrote a piece to set up our year-end series looking back over the 10 years, and you had some really cool facts that put it in perspective. Share a bit of that, will you? Okay, so I wanted to set the scene of what life was like 10 years ago, and it's really eye-opening to think how far we've come. Um, Cleveland was still in the middle of a foreclosure crisis. We had an uh, unemployment rate in Ohio of like 11%. Uh, The commissioners, the three commissioners, were still governing, even though we'd passed the reform. It was their final year. We had not... Uh, we had uh, had not elected our first county executive yet. Um, plans for the convention center were still in flux. Interbelt Bridge was closed to trucks after being deemed structurally inefficient. Sorry, insufficient. And Edgewater Pro- uh, Park was still owned by the state. It was still kind of dirty and gross. And there was no beach house. There were no Edgewater Live. So Cleveland was a very different now, place. You left one out, though. We had gone nearly a half century oh, without a championship. Okay, yes. <laughs> yes, obviously sports were not the biggest thing on my mind, but that was every year. It was just maybe next year, maybe next year. So one point before we start, we have not ranked these stories in our series that is running on Cleveland.com. You can't compare a story like the Cavs winning the first championship in a half century to the police killing of a 12-year-old. So please don't read anything into the order or which we're discussing the pieces. The only thing we did try to do was mix the couple of good news stories in so that we would not have an unbroken string of ugly stories. So let's get started. And even though we did not rank these stories, I would argue, I have been arguing, that the biggest story the past 10 years in this region is the police killing of Tamir Rice. It's very fresh in our minds again because Cleveland.com pulled out all the stops to examine its continuing meaning for the fifth anniversary a few years back. Layla, you had two of the biggest pieces in our fifth anniversary project, an essay calling on Greater Cleveland to embrace the lessons in this thing, and a profile on Tamir's mom, Samaria. What are your biggest takeaways from this story for the long term? Well, Tamir's death certainly wasn't uh, the case that prompted the federal investigation into police use of force in Cleveland and then the consent decree that eventually spun out of that, but it certainly was a major part of the backdrop for that. Uh, You know, we've said in recent weeks, and I think it bears repeating, that Tamir's death in November of 2014 was probably Cleveland's darkest day when a 12-year-old boy who was playing with this pellet gun in a Cleveland park uh, was gunned down by uh, by Cleveland, by a Cleveland police officer. Um, you know, in the five years since then, his mother, Samaria Rice, has really funneled all of her grief into seeking justice for him, into trying to craft some sort of legacy uh, for him about, you know, and also just trying to raise awareness about the institutional racism that gave rise to that terrible, terrible day. Um, and, and that was really the point of, of one of the columns that I had written in commemoration of, of that anniversary um, that, you know, 
we are a racist society and we need to face that, uh, that, that views, uh, we view black and brown boys and men as more physically imposing, as more menacing uh, than their white counterparts. And that fact led to Tamir's death and to the eventual acquittal of, of the officer who pulled the trigger. Um, so, you know, in the past few weeks, I, I've been challenged on that point by a lot of readers. I appreciate all the feedback. Um, uh, and they take offense to that notion, but I remain committed to that. You know, Officer Lohman, like many of us, truthfully, is a product of, uh, you know, a white America that commonly views black youth as a threat that must be contained. And so when Lohman and his partner came riding up on Tamir in that police cruiser that day, um, already assuming they knew everything they needed to know mm -hmm. about this, about this boy, um, you know, he fired within an instant uh, he said he thought that Tamir was drawing a weapon on him and he was afraid. And a grand jury backed up that that uh, assumption. Never mind that Ohio is an open carry state uh, and that Tamir, who they thought was a grown man, uh, could have been legally carrying a gun, um, either openly or with a concealed carry permit. A little bit of just a little bit of investigation would have gotten to the bottom of that. All right, slow down a little bit though. Let, let, let's let's go with the racism angle because you're covering a lot of ground there. The, the, what was interesting about the reaction to the stuff we did is there was kind of a racial divide in the reaction to it. We did from a lot of white readers mm -hmm. get hey, he looked like an adult. It's his mom and dad's fault because I mean all of the nonsense where they're trying to blame the victim or blame the family. But with African-Americans, it was almost like, I'm, we're glad you're you're trying to get at this because the relationship between African-Americans and the police has been broken for a long right. time. I mean, with, with the results of this, it's probably gotten a little bit better, but, but how many years did we do uh, use of force stories that looked at exactly. the way the police do this and yeah. there's a divide in the way that treatment is meted out right and and young people of color in the city and their families recognize that and they recognize that the relationship between them and the police is strained consent decree or not and that interactions with police can go bad really quickly um because the truth is that while tamir's case was arguably the worst case of police use of deadly force in cleveland um, it was not the first or the last. And I know we're going to talk about that some more mm -hmm. later in this podcast. But yeah, I think I think the idea of the racism, the relationship with the police, the history of police excessive force, that that's what this story exemplified. And it was just so tragic. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, 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 the thing that drove this one home from day one was we had the video of a 12 year old boy playing in a park. And he's just an innocent until yeah. the police come up and kill him. And, you know, and then his sister tries to get to him and they tackle her and lock her in a police car. And this thing could not have gone worse. But but I don't know how anybody watches that video right. and their heart doesn't just break. Pete. And, well, yeah, I agree with everything pretty much Layla was saying. And, but this also speaks to the problems that the Cleveland police have had, I think, with training. I mean, the way those cops rolled up on on Tamir, you could just tell in the video, you didn't have to be a, an expert. You knew that w the way they went about it was just wrong. Um, and there were issues, I think, with, with the one officer, Loman. You know, they found uh, when they looked into his background, maybe he shouldn't have been hired at all. But the other right. thing... The other well, thing it was actually, when we looked into his background, we found that he shouldn't have been hired <laughs> okay, at all. Right. They well, never looked into and, his background. But the other thing, too, about Tamir is it is it came at a time when these kinds of police shootings of unarmed 
African Americans mm-hmm. were, were, were happening right. all Ferguson over the all over the country, and and this one really, uh, but this one and and maybe you don't hear about Tamir as much elsewhere because of that. But um, this was this one really struck home because it well, it was a twelve year old boy, and it was the Black Lives Matter movement was happening all across the country. We had protests right. for days. They shut down. Um, the uh, I-90 during rush hour. And they were mostly peaceful protests. I think that there was a lot of fear that they were going to get out of hand. But um, Well, that's what marked Cleveland. In every other city where this happened, you had violence. Uh, but you really do have to hand it to Blaine Griffin, the current councilman, was the community relations mm-hmm. director, and the police chief, Calvin Williams. They did things you didn't see in other cities. And it's remarkable that the worst of these was the one city that didn't erupt in violence. Especially mm-hmm. coming off of the what had happened previously with the two yeah. who were who were shot up. Right. Okay, next on our list, we're going to talk about Jimmy DeMora and Frank Russo. The revelations about the machinery of corruption that they built started coming at us in 20... Uh, sorry, 2008, so two years before we're starting to talk about. But economy auditor Frank Russo took a plea deal in 2010, beginning bringing to light jaw-dropping brazenness, like he ferried $1,000 in a cigarette pack. That's one of my favorite details. (laughs) The full depth of the scheming became known in 2012 in the trial of Jimmy DeMora. We did a pretty big look back at the case last year for the 10th anniversary of the FBI raids that vaulted it into public consciousness. It was a reminder of just how rotten our county commission form of government had become, with elected leaders looking at their jobs as ATM machines and all about public bidding, and and it was crazy. Pete, you covered the DeMora trial, so let's talk about the lessons it offers. Well, uh, first of all, um, you know, if, if the Tamir story affected our sensibilities perhaps more than any other, this one... I think probably had a greater impact on the overall conduct of our of uh, of the county in terms of uh, of our governing of the way business is conducted because uh, when Demora and his group were in power there was such a pay to play culture going on um, and then when it was unraveled it was, it was really striking it was unbelievable and 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 the lesson learned is that uh, we suffered because of that businesses didn't want to do uh, contractors, developers didn't want to do business in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County because they knew the system was corrupted. They knew that you had to pay to play. Right. You had to deal with Jimmy DeMore. You had to deal with his cronies. Once that was eliminated, once we got our new form of government, uh, county council and a county executive, I, I really think that that did have a, a clear impact on this the revitalization of this community, especially downtown. We saw the revitalization of the flats. We saw a, a lot of development go on that I think maybe we, maybe we wouldn't have seen. I, I, I don't think we can underestimate the scope of this. We're talking about 70 people ended up getting caught up in this scheme. And it's all levels of government. We're talking from school boards in like Parma to uh, building commissioners. Think about Frank Russo. He oversaw all the valuation in the entire county. That's where you pay your taxes based on. And um, at the time, Peter Lawson Jones, a county commissioner, said he thought it had cost the county four to five million dollars. But I think we found out later it was a whole lot, probably more than that, just you know, taking value off the tax rolls that governments yep. never saw. And it was just a massive scheme with tentacles and basically all uh, forms of government in this county. And I think it took, you know, a while, obviously, for everything to come out. And, Demora, you know, Demora and Russo are in prison. And 
And I agree with you that we probably wouldn't see the economic development that we have since then. But it wasn't just that. I think there was a level of cynicism that grew during those years. Everybody just accepted that it was a dirty place to do business and nobody saw any any change coming. I mean, for 100 years, there had been efforts to change the form of county government that failed. This finally pushed it over the, the level. The thing that boggles my mind about this is this was the biggest story. I mean, we, we invested a gigantic team in this here at the end. I think it was a dozen people working on it at one time. We examined every level of this. Everybody who was convicted, it was humiliating. It was trumpeted everywhere. And you would have thought that people in public life would have read that and said, wow, I don't want to be that person. I'm not going to be corrupt. <laughs> but we've had no end of corruption cases since then. There was the big one at Metro Health. We had the Akron City Councilwoman. We've had a, a series of lawyers. I mean, it seems like every year, small and big, we continue to have it. And that boggles my mind because they do get caught and they do go to prison. Well, I, I would argue that we are much better off than we would have been if Things that if we hadn't done what we that did. we'd have lots more corruption yes, than we are. I, I, I clearly think because we're always there's always talk gonna, about there's, cynicism. There's always going to be corruption. <laughs> I call that the silver lining. There's, there's, I mean, there's, like, there's always going to be corruption. Side. There's always going to be people who don't get the message. I, I think the message did uh, get across pretty clearly. But you're right. There have been instances like with Metro Health, um, uh, uh, different things. But but let me, just going back to the the scope of what. Uh, was transpiring back uh, 10 years ago, it wasn't just business people paying DeMora and Russo uh, for access to contracts and and uh, for favors and things like that. They also corrupted two county judges, common pleas judges. This mm -hmm. thing reached into our judiciary. Uh, and Bridget McCafferty and uh, Judge Stephen Terry went to prison mm -hmm. uh, for 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 their crime. So, so yeah, Corruption has not ended. I would argue it's it's certainly better than it was. Um, well, I think part of that, though, and that's the, before we move on, something we should say is that I think you're seeing much greater vigilance now by the media, by voters, than existed then. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have said it a thousand times. We did not do our job in the 2000s in well, catching this it, out, and this was the reminder to us of we've really got to pay attention yeah. to this kind of thing. Well, it's not just us. I mean, the social media uh, age has blossomed even more in the last 10 years. Everybody is on top of everything. That doesn't mean people aren't doing things in secret, but I would suggest that, that there is a lot more transparency. All right, moving on. Perhaps no story had more tragedy in it than this one, the opioid crisis. And it hit Cuyahoga County particularly hard. We not only had thousands of people die, we had uncountable numbers of people grappling with the torment of addiction. It strained our mental health resources, our medical resources, the resources of the county coroner. Cops and paramedics have had to add a new tool to their arsenal's Narcan to try and save people from fatal overdoses. If you look back over the past 10 years, this story has been ever-present, and the suffering it has caused is immeasurable. So, Pete, we'll go to you. Of late, the news of this story is about the people who caused the crisis starting to make amends. Yes. Well, uh, this has been going on for some time, uh, uh, the, the opioid crisis, and it's people have begun to realize that uh, it, it largely came about because of legal prescriptions of opioids uh, that were fueled by the manufacturers of these opioids who claimed that they were not addictive. 
the primary uh, uh, party involved in this is is uh, uh, Purdue Pharma, um, and as a result, uh, people have been addicted all over the country on uh, with OxyContin and other forms of opioids. And once they lost the ability to get those, they got hooked on heroin. Uh, it just so happens Ohio and 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 Kentucky and West Virginia, we were some of the worst. Uh, uh, areas for uh, opioid addiction, and uh, it and then Cleveland kind of became an epicenter of the answer when uh, Judge Polster became the uh, kind of the uh, communal judge for uh, federal lawsuits all over the country. And um, one thing that's come out of that just in the in the past year is a settlement with Cuyahoga County and Summit County, where I think it's what two hundred sixty million dollars are being paid out by manufacturers of. Uh, these opioids and the distributors. There's still a lot, lot more uh, legal wrangling to go on locally and, and elsewhere. Yeah, we'll but, have we'll have but, the pharmacies next up. Next the year. the pharmacies are next up. But but this may make one other point because I, I I wrote a story about this a couple of years ago about the the how these legally prescribed opioids got out of control and it wasn't just the makers of the opioids but the medical community had basically declared war on pain. You know, they, you know, mm-hmm. hospitals were being judged on their on their ability to manage pain in their patients, and what way better to do that than just hand out these opioids? And they they learned a really hard lesson, even some local hospitals although, about that. Although that paints it as an innocent thing, whereas I think we've seen a lot of places where it's not. Look, if you go back to when uh, John Kasich became governor and Mike DeWine became attorney general nine years ago, one of the first things they did was hit the southern end of the county to close down pill mills. So before these 10 years even began, pill mills were, were causing huge amounts of addiction. So, so in the beginning, it's about the pill mills. And they shut those down. It reduced the availability. People moved into heroin. Then fentanyl got involved. In the most right. recent years, you know, this was a broad geographic thing. But in the most recent years, that's been mixed into cocaine. And so you're now in urban centers with the same level of addiction. Right. I think one point that you both touched on was that this is really broad. And not just geographically, but demographically. And I think because so many people got hooked on it, it wasn't just like a you know, say no to drugs, street drug kind of problem anymore. And everybody knew someone that was hooked on opioids. And so it changed the laws and the treatment and the the punishment for drug offenses. And you see even, you know, the most conservative Republicans coming around to this idea that you can't just lock people up forever for drug charges. And I and think in the last 10 years, we've turned a huge corner on how we treat people who are addicted to drugs and who have, you know, done drug-related crimes. No, I, 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 I would agree, and, and, and I think it's also made uh, people look at the, the racial disparity on how we deal with drug crimes as well, and that's a whole other issue. But uh, Okay, definitely. Time for something uplifting. So let's talk about the story that made here people here feel better than just about anything in the last 10 years, and that, of course, is the Cavs championship and the parade. Um, the city went 50 years without a championship, so we were hungry for it. Layla, what do you think it meant to this town? <laughs> well, I... Have all, I have been a huge Cavs fan, a huge LeBron fan, was devastated when he left us. Which is um, another top story of the decade, yeah, right? Yeah, and I was so, I felt so blessed to be assigned to go cover the parade that day. Um, you know, so, all right, you, you mentioned it before, we had 
we had the shot, we had the drive, we had the fumble, and then we coined the phrase the decision, decision. <laughs> which was just the worst, worst night ever. Um, uh, these were like moments when greatness was within reach and it just slips through our fingers. And, and uh, you know, these near misses had kind of cast this pall over the city for so many decades. And we recognize it now as this like self-inflicted negativity and, you know, just burying Cleveland in poor self-esteem for so long. Not only was self-inflicted, it was inflicted by poor sports teams for 15 <laughs> well, years. Okay, all right. I mean, they didn't win. So we're victims. But they had well, a, a defeatist attitude, it. too, yes. I would argue. Yes. But that 2016 NBA championship, you know, marked the the end of all of that. And, you know, for many young sports fans who, who you know, came of age or, you know, were living through that moment, um, you know, the, the notion that the city is cursed is part of like local lore now. It's not part of their identity. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so- what, but what, the, the other part of this is LeBron had left and devastated the city. Then he came Ugh. back and said, I'm, I want to bring a championship and he delivered it. Yes. So when he left the second time for LA, there wasn't the same kind of beating of ourselves, like, oh, we're, we're no, terrible. Of course. Well, and he learned the lesson about how to do it yeah, right. He didn't you go know, on you don't ESPN do- and say, I'm going to take my talent. But he he delivered the championship. He did what he said he would do. And I think Cleveland was a little sick of all the drama around around LeBron, too. I mean, yeah, he did deliver the championship. That was the main thing. But nobody wanted to go through another ordeal uh, like, you know, they did. But I mean, this brought six years this previous. brought. We don't really know how many people came downtown for this. I think the one point three million, million was a little <laughs> over a little, overblown. Yeah. But they couldn't even. I mean, the one reason it took three hours for the parade is they couldn't get the cars down the street because oh, they know. couldn't get people this off crush well, of fans, the street. Just... So I think, and you had the people hanging on the outside of the parking oh, garage. Well, the line at the rapid station at Green Road was around. I mean, it was probably a half mile long. Yeah, and on. and you had everybody all over the mall for these speeches that they did. And so, I mean, it was a pretty amazing moment for Cleveland. You know, so many folks along that parade route who I talked to had a different take on what it means for Cleveland so much more than sports. You know, like it marks Cleveland as this comeback city and the way they won the championship was yeah. so much in line with that. The right. seventh down, game yeah. you know, down victory. Down, yeah. Oh, my, unprecedented On the in the NBA. Um, so, I mean, that that just, you know, that's so Cleveland, right? Story, yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Of course, they were up 3-1 in the World Series and then okay. lost later that fall. So it, it kind of <laughs> played both ways. But oh, and then like you know that the, the moment when LeBron falls to the court and he's like, "Cleveland, I did it for you!" And oh, I still get choked up just thinking about it. <laughs> okay, oh, All right. awesome. All right, back to the downers. Oh. I think the strangest big news story we dealt with over the past ten years and maybe ever was the case of Ariel Castro and his three captive women. I'll never forget that night when the story broke that Gina De Jesus and Amanda Berry not only were alive, but were captives together with a third woman no one knew had been missing, Michelle Knight. This happened in 2013, but if you had been in Cleveland the previous 10 years, you would have seen no end of stories in the media wondering about the fate of these missing women. Most people presumed they were dead, and instead, they had been grabbed by this monster Ariel Castro to be his sex slaves for years. The story made international headlines. It was the most read story ever on Cleveland.com to that time. 
Layla, you and I were about the only ones left in the newsroom that night. Pete reminds me he was here too. And you were the first reporter to start cranking out the news on this when we got people out into the street, including Pete. What do you take away from this all these years later? That's probably the one news event of the past decade that people ask me about with regularity even today. Um, because it's so odd. It's so, so, it was crazy. And remember that the, the crush of media from across the country that just descended upon. I mean, we had all like CNN and I mean, they were just e- crawling through the town. But it was such a surreal night. You know, I, I remember the news coming across on the scanner and nobody really believed it because Look, remember all the times that we sent reporters out to cover, you know, the, the days when they would, you know, go and tear up some backyard. Yeah, they were thinking digging, that they had digging I know, body, they were looking yeah. for bodies. And, um, you know, the whole week was really that way. Uh, spent chasing every lead, pulling on every thread, trying to piece together how these women went missing, what was life like in captivity for and them. And it was horrifying. It, it was absolutely terrible. I mean, Amanda Berry had things. his kid and yes. had to raise the, the kid physical in and captivity. sexual abuse that they endured and, and the, you know, just the torture and starvation and and you know things like that yeah she she gave birth in an inflatable it, swimming pool it had in the been basement a decade mm-hmm. Amanda Berry had been there at like more than a decade yeah right, right. Yeah. and I, mean, I think is, Michelle Knight well, had he, been there the longest when he yeah. made Amanda Berry watch news uh, accounts of her mother you oh, know yeah. begging for her return I mean it was, it's just one of the most monstrous things ever and you're right people did call for around the world Pete did, did you were the one that dealt with the foreign media right because oh, we got well, right. so yeah, many but, calls but before that I was getting ready to leave that night and 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 the news broke. I walked over. I said, you all need some help. And you sent me over to Seymour Avenue. And I, I remember getting access beyond the police cordon. I snuck through a cemetery, through a hole in a fence. <laughs> I got into the house across the street from where the, the women had been kept. And I was interviewing the families there, including the one woman who remembers seeing Amanda Berry's arm being thrust from the door and she was yelling, help me, help me. Oh and then another kid, gosh. another person ran over and Charles Ramsey, I think, came from another direction. And what was really surreal for me is is I got a call from an editor that night saying, have, have you talked to Piers Morgan yet? Remember, Piers Morgan took over for Larry King, right? And I said, oh, that's right. I go, no, what, what, what's with Piers Morgan? Next thing you know, I'm sitting in the bathroom in this house and I'm doing an interview with Piers Morgan and John Walsh, you know, of the... Who, of the the missing children, and uh, and outside there are all these. It's like a block party with a with a police cordon around around the house. But it was joyous. You could feel you could feel just this joy emanating from the group because these three women had been found. But but to your point, yeah. The the, the, the thing was, Layla said this became international, and and we were so overwhelmed by requests for interviews that we did something I don't think we'd ever done before. We basically made you the guy who fielded all of them. And yeah. so you kept you collecting all of your colleagues' information. That was part of the part of the problem was though is I was so I was talking to Ireland, I was talking to Japan, um, uh, you know, radio stations, newspapers all over all over the, the world. And um, but I wasn't necessarily always in touch with the reporters. So they'd be asking me questions and I would tell them what, what I knew. And then mm-hmm. sometimes they would tell me things that I didn't know because I hadn't had a chance to walk across the newsroom and so forth. But yeah, it was quite uh, it was quite the story. There was there, I mean, I remember sitting because we were about two months away from starting the, the, the new company and all coming mm-hmm. over here. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking this will be the last major story that we all cover together. And it was I mean, there's I can't imagine there'll ever be anything. Well, like and then it. the I don't know if you want to get into this, but then, of course, the trial. 
Well, what a trial well, with the plea deal, mm-hmm. and Ariel and Castro ended up suicide. committing suicide. And that right. house was torn the down. House house down. Was torn I mean, everybody down, yeah. just, it was such a vile story. People just wanted to remove the setting, and and and, and, and I don't think there's a lot of lessons in this one. It was just a no. monstrous guy did bad things. Although, how did it, how for that many years did that behavior go undetected? I still wonder. How it, that was possible. It is a mystery. Um, let's talk about another story that's probably easier to figure out. It resonates to this day. The closing of United Airlines Hub in Cleveland. In the early part of these 10 years, United merged with Continental, which had been our longtime hub. And for a while, United kept the Cleveland Hopkins International Airport as a hub, which meant business people and the rest of us could get direct flights to cities across America. But in 2014, four years after the merger, United gave up on us. They shut the hub, and for the past five years, getting to a lot of places had meant flying through another hub. Low-cost airlines have filled the void with vacation and family flyers, and, and numbers are up. But the business community hates not having our hub here. It costs them money. Pete, what is a mid-level city like Cleveland supposed to do when it wants to attract businesses to move here, but it doesn't have access to easy flights? Well, they try to play up the other positive things about their community. Um, I don't, Cleveland's not alone. I mean, I think there are other cities our size that that, who, that, that where they're probably complaining about their airports. Um, you know, when they when the when the hub closed, obviously the number of flights went down. The number mm-hmm. of cities served went way down. They've since come back to some degree, and they're more based on the organic uh, uh, traveler. You know, they're, they're, where the people are. Uh, flying out of the airport originate here as opposed to, you know, laying over from going somewhere else. So, yeah, you, th- there is a loss of of some of those uh, destinations that they no longer have. I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would – would you say, though, it was a – it was a major reason why Cleveland has difficulty attracting businesses. Yeah, is, is, if you talk to any business person, they say recruiting is really hard yeah. because you can't get direct flights, and their first stop is this shabby airport that compares very yeah. badly well, to any airport in America. Um, and it costs them a lot of money. Instead of being able to jump on a flight, get somewhere in two hours, have right. a business meeting, and come home, they have to build in entire days of travel. And let's face it, because of the way air travel has evolved in this country, delays are more common than non-delays. You know, there's an answer to all this. The Hyperloop. Yeah, right. The $30 billion <laughs> Hyperloop. Let's stay on the point of the, the hub. The, the, one of the other areas that was really damaged is Akron-Canton Airport had been doing fairly well in the years before that hub closed. But as, as Hopkins absorbed all those cheapo flights to Orlando, Akron-Canton has also suffered. And, and I think um, what ultimately the community is going to have to do Akron, Cleveland, the, the whole region is going to have to get together and try to resolve this. You know, they're going to probably we need a new airport, whether it's where the current Hopkins Airport is now or some other property between here and Akron. Um, if it's if the cost is shared, it's probably doable. If if uh, you know uh, Cleveland is going to remain the the sole owner and operator of what's essentially a regional airport, that's not going to work. So there has to be some fundamental structural change to solve this very real problem if our economy really wants to 
maximize its you know ability to grow so i did a bunch of reporting on the akron canton airport for a while and i'm from akron and i can remember when that was just like four gates you know and you'd walk out on the tarmac and then for years it was the fastest growing airport in america and it had airtran which was the big thing now airtran got bought out by southwest southwest moved all its flights to cleveland and that's what filled a lot of these holes that continental slash united left was you know spirit Southwest, Frontier, all these places that go to vacation spots, right? right? So I don't have to travel for business, so it doesn't really bother me. But um, I can understand that that would be a big deal. The good thing about Cleveland is it's easy to get in and out. Like, I think we just checked in the biggest delays last year was like 2.1 minutes at, at getting through your right. security. Mm-hmm. And they did just do a bunch of upgrades. We've got a story coming up. There's now a Shake Shack at the airport and a salon and um, well, that's a tequila the, the bar is coming. To come <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, the problem is an airport is your terminal to go somewhere. And so you can you can put in places to eat and do some nice amenities because you have interminable delays and you got to do something while you're sitting there. But unless you make it much easier for business people to get where they need to go, it's going to remain a problem. And because we have competing airports and no real organization, you mentioned it. You got the Richmond Airport, you got the Burke Airport, you got Akron Canton, and you got Cleveland Hopkins, and they're not working together. The city owns Burke and Cleveland Hopkins, but the other two are run by two different authorities. And what would what would it mean if you started to bring some coordination to that? Well, I think it could mean it, it, you'd be saving some money and I think if you save money, you could perhaps reduce the fees that airlines pay to have uh, gates. Uh, perhaps that would mean more more sites, more more destinations. Um, you, you know, I, I'm sure there are things that can be done, uh, but I think they would require some pretty drastic structural change. And and we and this is one of the things I I'm hoping that the powers that be are, are talking about uh, trying to address uh, because. Um, the you, problem you is, need more routes. You do need more routes. The problem is the powers that be are all working in isolated pillars, and and until you get the qu- kind of coordination you have in Columbus, where everybody's marching to the to the same drum, we're not. I mean, John Penny gave his speech about the dysfunction we have here a year and a half ago. The dysfunction reigns, and and it, there's been really very little to yeah. change that. And so while there was talk a year and a half ago about what you might do at the airport, that's kind of gone away. And you just, it's people accept that we have a really bad airport and you can't get anywhere from here. So get back to your hyperloop. Next up, a story (laughs) that might have the most profound impact on how this state is operated, gerrymandering. The legislative and congressional districts in Ohio have been drawn in such a way as to give Republicans complete dominance in elections, even though the state is pretty well divided between Democrats and Republicans. This has resulted in a supermajority of largely rural lawmakers determining what happens in the largely Democratic counties. It means that half the people in the state feel like no one represents them. But after the census is completed next year, brand new processes will start defining those lines, which could slowly start reversing the trend. Pete, talk about some of the results of gerrymandering these past years. Let's start with just the state of Ohio and the Ohio legislature. I think, uh, I, I'm, I don't know the exact number of legislative seats there are, but uh, a strong majority are in Republican hands, and that's because the, their legislative districts have been designed to preserve those seats, that you know, designed in a way that uh, a majority of Republican b- voters um, are in those in those areas, and as a result, we have a legislature that um, 
does things in a very conservative manner. They tend to dismiss uh, the, the desires and demands of the urban centers like Cleveland and Columbus and Cincinnati. They have denied uh, the legislature, the Republican-controlled legislature has denied uh, Cleveland's ability to do a number of things, set their own gun laws, for, for instance, uh, because of the, the home rule uh, uh, le- uh, regulations or, uh, that have been enacted. Um, it basically takes away the voice of the urban centers, and, and that's a huge problem. And at the congressional level, uh, we have, I think, 16 congressional districts, uh, 12 are held by Republicans, four are held by Democrats. Yet in the last election, Trump, I think, won the general election, the, the general vote in Ohio 53 to 47. Well, that doesn't translate into a 12-4 split, or at least it shouldn't, but it does. And we've got some of the most crazy legislative uh, districts, congressional districts, Marcy Kaptur, her district is called the Snake on the Lake. It extends from Toledo to Cleveland, basically. Uh, uh, Jim Jordan uh, uh, has one that goes from Dayton uh, practically to Cleveland, and everybody knows about that now because he, he <laughs> made he, because of the impeachment hearings. Um, but this is this is wrong. That the the court uh, the courts in some states and a lot of states are going through this. This is just not Ohio. This is a lot of places. The U.S. Supreme Court. Everybody was hoping that they would resolve this. But the Supreme Court earlier this year basically said, no, this is a state's decision. And, um, and there's not going to be time for the states to resolve this prior to the next election. So the 2020 election will, will go on as um, uh, with, with the current uh, districts. But after that, there's, there are uh, uh, steps in place, processes in place to make it better, both at the state level and at the congressional level. That Ohio level. voters voted on. But Ohio mm-hmm. voters voted on. The state level, they voted in 2015. The Ohio, uh, the congressional districts, there was a vote in 2018. It's not perfect, though, and if and if it doesn't work, like after one or two tries, they can revert back to the old way. So the, the, this, it, we, this, this I, I, it has I, not been resolved. This yeah. has not been solved. Although it's, it's better, and I do want to put a plug in for Rich Exner. Rich Exner took this project on uh, before the uh, the voting to change it, and a lot of the people involved in the reform efforts give him credit for driving that thing the hardest. I can't tell you how many times Rich's stories were quoted in legislative hearings about creating the new processes. So I, I say that's score one for Rich Exner. And this story, I think, lasted the entire 10 years we're talking about yeah. um, they're just the machinations of it and and hearing about after the last census where they had a Republican bunker that they had hired consultants to figure out. Yeah, they're the in a hotel place. room yeah. and secret meetings in a hotel room to map out how they could continue but to dominate. All legal, though. Yeah, all well, not right, but legal. No, not right. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of law enforcement related stories from the past 10 years. First, the consent decree with Cleveland Police. Chris, when you were Metro editor at the Plain Dealer, you oversaw all sorts of stories and projects about the use of force by Cleveland police. It's not something unknown, yet it took seemingly forever for the U.S. Justice Department to get interested. Finally, in 2014, it did. The case that had triggered the interest was the famous one of 137 shots. A police chase involved 62 police cars ending up in East Cleveland with police officers in a circle firing at the 1979 Chevy Malibu, killing Melissa Williams and Timothy Russell. 
The chase had started because Cleveland officers thought the couple fired a shot, when the most likely explanation was that the car backfired. The thing that was was scandalous with police failing to follow all sorts of poli- policies and procedures, and they tried to discipline officers and supervisors, but that was overturned in many cases by labor mediators. Then in 2015 came the acquittal of Officer Anthony Brillo in the case. He had stood on the hood of that car, uh, emptied his gun into the car, and then reloaded it to fire again. And the announcement of his acquittal led to an all-day protest throughout the city, which many people feared violence was going to break out. The Justice Department came in, hashed out an overwhelming overhaul of police here do business. Pete, are we better off? I can only think that we are. Uh, I I, I do think we are. I think there were some statistics that that came out recently about um, uh, incidents where police had to use their weapons, and I think they're down. this year over over previous years there's been there's been training on how uh, on use of force there's been training on dealing with um uh suspects that appear to have mental illnesses uh you know we we forget about tanisha anderson who died at the hands of of uh of uh, law enforcement uh and she had a mental illness and i don't think they knew quite how to deal with her um there have been uh, there's more equipment there's uh there's more awareness uh, there's there's talk about creating a, essentially a mental illness halfway house where suspects would be taken to get treatment rather than being taken to to jail where really awful things can happen uh, at the hands of of, uh, of jail folks who aren't properly trained. I do think we're in a better situation. Um, you know whether or not we have we have solved the the kind of underlying problem of what Layla was talking about. Uh, earlier the our our, our racial um difficulties uh, uh that that's probably not much different uh, a few days ago i i bumped into a young man who used to work at the boys and girls club uh with with youth and then followed his dream of becoming a cleveland police officer and um he works the dangerous night shift on the near west side which happens to be the neighborhood where he grew up and he was raving about his experience in training in in um, in the academy. And he said, you know, he confirmed to me that cultural sensitivity, racial biases, de-escalation, that those are heavily covered in the new curriculum at the academy. And he, according to him, it really shows even among the more veteran members of the police force. You know, he talked about how well-received officers are in the neighborhood now. Um, and if you approach citizens with respect and compassion, how much of a difference that makes. Um, I mean, he himself is a very sensitive, compassionate person. So I think that maybe, you know, he's got his own lens and maybe he, you know, the people that he's interacting with are that's rubbing off on them. But but he was really he was very happy with his experience so far with Cleveland police. I, I actually have a hard time believing we've gotten here. I, I mean, I remember when Mike White was mayor, he, he he did a lot of things, gets a lot of credit. But his biggest failure is he kept trying to do things to bring the police to heal, to treat the community better. And he couldn't do it. He lost mm-hmm. it every turn. I remember, I mean, we did all sorts of work on their use of force. Remember the, the piece we did where every time they used the, the, uh, the taser, it was justified every time. And oh, that's yeah. just, not, mm-hmm. you know, our work was included in the Justice Department's filing to get to a consent decree 
the the negotiations with the city were anything but easy. And when it finally came, I mean, they, they, they had all sorts of stuff that they weren't doing. They weren't cataloging when they drew guns on people, anything. The fact that we can say today that the relationship between the police and this community is much improved is mind-boggling. I mean, remember the description that, that the police were viewed as an occupying military mm-hmm. force, right. that they were not of the community. And where you really started to see it turn was in the story we talked about earlier at the Cavs Parade. People and the police were engaging with each other in a way we had not seen in a long time. And and then, in a story we'll talk about later at the RNC, mm-hmm. the, the, there is a huge difference. I mean, when Frank Jackson stops being mayor sometime in the next century, <laughs> one of the things he'll be able to point back to is his legacy is that that the police and the and the community built a stronger bond. Long way to go. Obviously Certainly. a long way to go. I just would not have predicted ten years ago that we'd be where we are now. Right. And one thing that is really palpable as the body cameras that police are wearing oh, and, and mm-hmm. all the suburban departments are wearing them too. And I think that has added a lot of transparency and accountability. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And the city is insisting now that any of the police departments that operate within its borders, if they want to have any kind of cooperation with the city, they have to adhere to the same policies they built into the consent decree. So and this is this is a win. It's unfortunate that the Trump administration has pretty much ended these things because I, unlike elsewhere in America, this one seems to have real staying power, mm-hmm. which was one of the concerns. And also, I think that the police force has they have done uh, a laudable job at recruiting from the neighborhoods, from you know communities of color to be more reflective of the community that they're policing. I think that 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 goes a long way. And and look, you've got to give the city administration, the police chief, the police brass credit Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. doing this in good faith, because this was coming. It's the steamroller. And and you could pay lip service. This was clearly what Steve Loomis and the police union wanted to happen. They were dead set against this. And really, I think the reason it they, they they backed off was the killing of Tamir Rice. You can resist the police consent decree until you kill a 12-year-old boy, and then you've got to be back on your heels because that's just not mm. supposed to happen. Except how vehemently did they deny Loomis. any sort of culpability? Steve Loomis did, but I think most police are honest, decent people, and they had to be crushed just like everybody else. That, right, that was a right. turning point. The shooting of Tamir Rice, you could kind of see the, t- mm. the consent decree becoming something different there. Let's do the other criminal justice story before we end this thing on a high note. The other criminal justice story is one that is very much alive today. It is, of course, the jail. In 2018, seven people died, and in previous years, we had no more than two. As that crisis grew with each death, County Executive Armin Budish asked the U.S. Marshals Service to come in and investigate. And at year's end, the report that came out could not have been more devastating. Inhumane conditions, debilitating crowding, an attitude about the inmates that was just distressing. The report had dozens and dozens of findings about food service, medical treatment, and more. In 2019, after County Executive Armin Budish hired former County Prosecutor Bill Mason as his chief of staff, they finally started to turn things around. The most recent inspection shows a lot of improvement, and the jail has been under capacity for the first time in decades. But, Layla, we we do need a new jail to make this right. They can't do certain improvements with the current structure. Everyone knows that. You did a piece on what a modern jail should be. What do we need here? 
Well, to kind of paint the picture, you know, in Cuyahoga County's downtown jail, inmates are housed in pods. And while they're in the the day room where they spend a lot of time, they're supposed to have access to an officer stationed at an adjacent desk. Um, But the U.S. the Marshall Service report revealed that the facility was understaffed by 96 correctional officers and that that low staffing and the overcrowding often meant one officer would be left in charge of you know, a hundred or more inmates at a time, uh, well above, you know, the recommended ratio of, I think, one to 64. Um, and that led the jail to adopt a practice called red zoning, where pods would remain on lockdown for up to 27 hour stretches. And let's let, let's stop, though, because generally when you lock down a jail, it's because somebody has escaped. Right. There's been a riot. There's been something serious. It is not a standard operating yeah, procedure right. this is to lock people in the rooms with nothing to do. Completely because, because of staffing inefficiencies. Right. Um, and so inmates would spend nearly all of their time in their cells without access to to showers or telephones or recreation. Um, so I, for this story that you mentioned, I spoke with three corrections and jail experts who said that uh, the uh, direct supervision model is is kind of the gold standard of jailing. And that model says that inmates behave better and have better outcomes if guards are stationed within common areas that the inmates share, rather than just observing the inmates via camera or walking past their lockdown cells and taking a peek in from time to time. Um, and, and generally, you know, they, they all said they, they had consensus that an administrative model founded on the premise that inmates are people and that society benefits from a sincere effort at their rehabilitation just kind of naturally gives rise to a more effective and humane approach to inmate management overall. So, you know, this model calls for softer finishes in the jail, uh, carpeting, and real wood tables instead of steel or concrete, uh, because they say that those sorts of surfaces send the message that you are expecting inmates to vandalize this space. Um, and so, you know, in addition to that, they they offer, you know, they, they say you should offer inmates uh, opportunities for education, vocational training programs, and things like that. And then most importantly, of course, reduce jail bloating by reforming the bail bond system. Right, let, and let's let's yeah, turn that over to Pete. Pete, you've done a lot of work on justice reform. You've been the lead reporter for some time now on our Justice for All series that launched this movement. You, you've paid a lot of attention to the discussions about a new justice center, a new jail, building them separately, building them together. It seems like there's some movement going like Thursday or, or very soon we're going to have some updates on, on what's going on there. So, so what should we look for going forward on the jail? Well, right now the jail is in the same building with the Common Police Court and the Cleveland Municipal Court, the Justice Center downtown. So the discussion is, you know, what do you do? Do you build a new jail separate from the court uh, courthouses? Do you build it where it is now? I think I think they've pretty much come to the conclusion to be separate. Oh well, I I, I think so. I think you're going to see a. a jail oh, this is me based on my thinking and also talking with some people i think you're going to see a jail somewhere on the outskirts of downtown and you're going to perhaps see the courthouse built on the same site where it is now or where the jail is would the jail though follow the model layla's talking about where it's a single story so, spread out on a lot of land? i i would i would bet that it will because and and because there's a steering committee right now of 12 people 
all very involved with the jail operations and, and the court operations, and they are going to decide what to do. And, and, and the county executive is on this uh, uh, committee because he's going to have to decide whether or not the money is going to be spent. But uh, And so when they design this jail, they're going to take into account the very things that, that Layla was talking about, plus a number of other changes in the way, uh, like central booking, where police bring uh, all their suspects to a common place, uh, uh, this mental health uh, halfway house, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, how that could factor in. They, they want to take all these best practices and, and incorporate them into the design of the jail. And I bet it will be, I don't know if it'll be one story, but it's certainly not going to be a tower like they have now. Um, and it's going to have uh, a, a lot of these amenities and, uh, in it. And um, it's, But it's going to cost a half a billion dollars. But it will save some money because you can staff it differently. The guy leading this is Jeff Applebaum, who Lauren knows well for his previous work on that really successful uh, building hey, called the Med Medical Mart. Mart. Uh, but he's the one that's been doing all the research and is supposed well, to Well, he's got him. a couple of uh, organizations helping him, and and uh, but he is the leader, yeah. All right, guys, we have reached the last story, the final one, the 10 of 10. It's good news for Cleveland, the successful hosting of the Republican National Convention in 2016. For four days that summer, and really for months leading up to it, the world said all sorts of great things about Cleveland. We had beautiful weather, no violence, and a tour de force performance by Cleveland police in keeping the peace while remaining pretty friendly. So, Pete, how important was this to the city? I think it was huge. Uh, it was um, like you said, it was a virtually mistake-free co- convention. Forget about what happened inside the building. <laughs> well, and let's just and let's just the talk. Balloon drop. Uh, which 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 was kind of fascinating in itself to experience that. But but on the outside, there were police from uh, uh, from all over the country that came here to volunteer. You had squads from Indiana and horse patrols from Texas, and there were police on bikes and police on in buses and. You know, uh, and they were all very kind of, I don't know, I want to say unassuming, but they they were very friendly. They dealt with people in a friendly way. I walked down, I think it was Euclid, and there was a state trooper from Indiana playing drums with a, a street band. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, but but somewhere right now, Sabod Chandra is shaking violently because <laughs> you said mistake free. It wasn't mistake free. They did they did squash people's First Amendment rights of flag burning by arresting them and they've had to pay through the nose. But it's a tiny mistake in the grand scheme of things. So your point's taken, but if we left that out there, Sabod would have a heart attack. So see I mean not only yeah. did we have police from all over the country, <laughs> we had media from all over the country. They took yeah. over like East Fort street they had nbc and cnn had these stages that they built and just to walk around town and see everybody selling the buttons and you know all of the paraphernalia and to see people i mean it was a really electric atmosphere the long long guns on public square okay and 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 this was republicans in cleveland not a republican stronghold true and they turned the parking garage at the queue into like the media center and they had carpeting down it was like just a weird sight to see it was very cool (laughs) they had parties all over the county oh, yeah. because they took up all the hotel space. They like, went all the way to Kalahari I- I- with Iowa, the California I- Iowa, delegation. Iowa, I think, was out in, in Beechwood and Arizona was here and, and and they were all over the place and, and they were all having uh, parties. They were having fun. Um, it was it, it was it was a great thing for for Cleveland the way they and and the whole 
country recognized it. Well, it was, it was international attention following the international attention we had a month earlier with the, the Cavs win. Yeah. And every magazine in the world was, was saying, go to Cleveland, go to Cleveland. It was attention, which is why they wanted it. It's why they competed so hard for it. The one thing that, that was in the background that I'm not sure people knew is there was a huge machinery of people and groups involved in planning this thing. We were involved. All the all of our competitors in the media world were on committees with us. This was probably the the greatest coming together of people in Cleveland for a common goal. And the saddest part about it is, at its end, people said, you know, we should keep this machinery going so that we could do other great things. And it all just fell apart and went straight to hell. You know what I thought was most fascinating was watching watching the police interact. So with protesters specifically, like there would be a group of protesters that would assemble and they're trying to, you know, march down down East Ninth Street and then alongside them are just cops on bikes. <laughs> just yeah. like right. peacefully just riding along, yeah. making Including sure. Including the chief. Yeah. Including just, the police chief. Yeah. I love and the cops Cleveland. on bikes. Reporters. We had like a whole flunk of people that just like went out two by two. They like Facebook lived all these protests. I mean, it was mass uh, amount of, of it, coverage. It, it was a great thing that that lived up to its build up, and the city carried it off. You never want to bid on another one because you cannot do it. The funny thing was the the Democratic one was in Philadelphia a week later. It rained like hell and was awful weather. So everybody <laughs> was pointing to Cleveland as having done it right. Look, I guess we control we, the weather here. Yeah, we do. We do. Every time we have a big event, wait till the NFL draft. <laughs> I guess that if we looked at the biggest stories of any 10 year period, we probably have a big list like this. But I do have to say we had a lot of huge news in this town since 2010. Tamir Rice, Castro, the RNC. It's all big stuff. But think about what did not make the cut. The conviction of our sicko serial killer, Anthony Sowell, the development of the Flats East Bank, the Indians going into extra innings in game seven and, and losing in the World Series. What else do you think, uh, you know, would normally make a list like this that didn't? Um, I think uh, kind of the recovery of the Cuyahoga River to a certain extent. I mean, we had a story. I can't believe Pete said that before Laura could. <laughs> I mean, Give me a chance. I'm sorry, but, it, but, I, th- but I think... Uh, just in the last year, we had a story where uh, they've said you can eat uh, walleye mm-hmm. from, from the river. Fr- from the river, and then yeah. you would have thought that there was even walleye in the river. Uh, you can eat any fish from the river. Yeah, now. but um, I mean, I, I don't know if I would make a habit of swimming in the river every morning, but I, I do think it, you, it, it's there's a lot going on in that river now. Yeah. How about I, the Horseshoe Casino? Oh yeah, I forgot about Square. that. Yeah. Remember I, when you guys sent center. me to the casino yeah. to to ex- try and make you a gambling <laughs> yeah. addict? Even though I had never life? gambled in my life, I it was to supposed to be funny for you guys. One time when they got Kino at the racetracks, got to spend twenty <laughs> I, bucks of the editors. I money. tried to get a free meal, but that, no, I didn't. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. What we have left is what we almost as big as what we talked about here. Readers should check in with Cleveland.com over the next two weeks. Read our top ten of every year as well as our top 10 sports stories, entertainment, talkers, et cetera. Layla and Pete, thank you so much for bringing your perspective to this discussion. Oh, let's do this again in 10 years. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. All right, we're going to close this out with uh, another segment where we visit with Troy Smith, who lists his top 100 movies of the last 10 years. Uh, Lots of debate coming on that one. Welcome to the podcast, Troy Smith. 
What's going on? <laughs> well, in line with all the other lists of the top stories that we've been doing, you're here to talk about your list of the top 100 movies of the past 10 years. We're not going to talk about your number one here. People need to go online for the whole list. But I was surprised given how avid a fan you are and how you told me this was the most culturally significant movie of the decade that the original Avengers was way down at number 100. So how many movies from the Avenger franchise made your list? Uh, I believe four. Four movies. Uh, the original Avengers, Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain America Winter Soldier, and Black Panther, I believe, are the four from this decade. I mean, there's some great ones from the previous decade as well. <laughs> I, uh, I think you nailed it with this list in so many ways. It Follows is in the top ten. The social network is there, which is fascinating because originally we felt sorry for that character, and now we think it wasn't mean enough to him. Interstellar. The one that surprised me, and the one I didn't agree with, is the one we're not going to talk about, your number one. I thought your number two, Get Out, and a bunch of others in the top ten were better. So what went into your thinking as you selected your top five? I really tried to look at movies that sort of defined the decade of filmmaking, um, and that kind of played into number one, which I won't mention, but I just thought the ambition of it really kind of reminded you of what filmmaking could be. Forget all the special digital effects and and all the pizzazz that the Avenger films bring. This was old school filmmaking, but on a a, a large scale, if you will. Right. Filmmakers are going to know what that is. We just gave it away, but don't say it. Don't say it. Okay. Okay. I have, I have no idea what you're talking about, but (laughs) I have to confess the only genre in your list that I'd seen all of them were the animated Disney flicks. So, um, I have a lot of movies to see, but there are also some movies yet to be released over the holidays. You don't think any of them could crack your top 100? Um, I just haven't seen them. You know, Little Women is supposed to be really good. Um, I think that's like a Laura flick. That's totally. I was like, (laughs) but they just remade it. And I realized that was when I was 16. So it's been quite a while. That one, I haven't seen 1917, the Sam Mendes film that a lot of people are talking about, the war movie. Um, so those those could make the list. There's the uh, Richard Jewell, the Eastwood movie, even though there's a lot of controversy with that now. Yeah. <laughs> so Mitch I don't know how that's going to come Eastwood's across. trying to rescue the reputation of Richard Jewell, and he completely <laughs> and unfairly trashes the reputation of a dead reporter. It's, it's yeah. really not good. So you had Inception down lower than I would have thought. And there, that's one of those kind of controversial movies. There's two schools of thought. Some people just think it's great. Other people think it's terrible. What's your thought on it? You didn't have it. You didn't have it at the bottom, but you didn't have it near the top. I mean, I love Inception. I remember leaving the theater with my brother after seeing that, just blown away. Like, cause you've never seen anything like that. It's a dream within a dream, within however many dreams. <laughs> they might still be dreaming. Uh, it was a great film. Nolan's always doing something different. Uh, Christopher Nolan, that is. So, I think Inception, maybe I've seen it too much. A lot of this is looking back on movies you know, in retrospect, right? So we don't, in hindsight, what will, you're going to bring up once upon a time in Hollywood, we're going to talk about Tarantino, but what's that movie going to look like in 10 years? Might might move into the top 10. Well, let's might, go you know. there because it's going to look really good in 10 years. <laughs> that, that one you had even lower than, than Inception and you didn't even have the hateful eight on the list. I love both of them. You're not big on Tarantino? Tarantino's probably my favorite filmmaker ever. One of the few I've seen every movie and I'm going to I'm gonna do it. Hateful Eight's probably his worst movie. Oh, uh, no, <laughs> no, I'm gonna say no, that, no. To no. me, it's his worst movie. It's that or Death Proof. Death proof, uh, yes. One of those two. So you had a lot of coming-of-age movies on this list. I think there was only one that be called, could be called a chick flick, and that was Bridesmaids. Um, what do you think the biggest surprise was that you were looking back at? Like, It's Interstellar, and Chris and I talked about this uh, you know, recently, but 
that movie when it came out when you left the theater kind of like what the hell was that you know it's a lot of time play time travel elements and space elements and aging but there's something about that movie that stays with you and i think that was the thing with a lot of these films when you look at it follows or, or get out and a lot of the movies that i chose they just kind of stick with you to become a part of you and interstellar I did not anticipate that movie still being a favorite of mine that I continue to watch after, you know, years after it came out. Mm. Well, it's a fun list. It's given me a lot to check out from the library. <laughs> so thanks. <laughs> the library. That's right. That's right. The library. Not streaming. It's the free. library. It's streaming. free. Um, thanks for sharing with us how you put it together. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a, it was a good 10 years in movies. So. Well, Laura, it's clear that this was one newsy decade, lots to talk about, lots of things we didn't get to. I'm glad that uh, you've coordinated that project where we're looking at each year individually for the top stories that happened in those years so that we don't get a short shrift to anything. Yeah, it's quite a trip to think about where we were 10 years ago and how far we've come and God knows who, you know, how we'll be in the next 10 years. You didn't have any kids when this decade began. I know, both of my... Exactly. I was thinking when, when you were talking about Ariel Castro, I was like, I was on maternity leave for that big story. So that was sad. But, you know, other things. Yeah, that was... That, that, there'll never be another story like that, I hope. Okay, well, thanks for listening to this special episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast analysis of the news by the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. We'll be back next week with our regular episode, available on Thursdays, wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.